Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 12, Desperate Measures. I'm Brandon Seal. On January 26th, 1840, representatives from the towns, villas, and pueblos of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas met at a little trading post called Casablanca on the southern shore of the Nueces River and established a new government. Antonio Canales was named commander-in-chief of this government, and the fiery José María Carvajal was selected as the general secretary of the general council, basically the secretary of state of this Republic of the Northern Border, or the Republic of the Rio Grande, as Texian newspapers started to call it. After celebrating this new government, José María Carvajal traveled to San Antonio. He was going to try one more time to strike an alliance with the Republic of Texas, which had already rebuffed him at least twice. But by this time, he was coming as the representative of a separate, legitimate government, not just as a partisan in a Mexican civil war. Granted, his government was self-declared. That's kind of all that a government really is anyway, a group of folks calling themselves a government with an army to back it up. And in the case of Carvajal and the other Rio Grande Federalists, their army had even won a battle since the last time they'd been to Texas, the Battle of Alcantara. Carvajal's diplomatic mission also had one other thing going for it. This time, he had the support and personal recommendation of José Antonio Navarro. Depending on how you count it, José Antonio Navarro had been or would be a part of more than a half-dozen Texas declarations of independence and constitutional conventions in his lifetime. Navarro was also a relative and lifelong friend of the now 30-year-old Carvajal. And Navarro was every bit as Federalist as Carvajal was. Navarro was also known as a close ally of then-Texian President Mirabeau Lamar, a relationship that Lamar would abuse the next year when he asked Navarro to accompany the ill-fated Texian attempt to conquer Santa Fe. That affair ended with Navarro in a Mexican jail cell for almost three years. But for now, Navarro was comfortably situated in San Antonio, which he represented in the Texian Congress. That gave Navarro perspective, of course, on the delicacy of President Lamar's position with respect to the Rio Grande Federalists. The young Republic of Texas very much wanted a friendly Federalist Republic as its neighbor, as a buffer to the still vengeful centralist regime governing in Mexico City, yet openly supporting the further dismemberment of the Mexican nation was just as likely to provoke retaliation as it was to end in the recognition of some breakaway northern frontier republic. The centralist Mexican government had already begun protesting the presence of Texians in Canales and Zapata's Rio Grande Federalist Army, which eventually forced President Lamar in December of 1839 to make a public statement, quote, warning and admonishing all citizens of Texas to abstain from all attempts to invade the territory of Mexico, end quote. His statement seems to have made exactly zero impact, however, as volunteers continued to trickle south, which eventually prompted the centralist Mexican president to ask his Congress to declare war on Texas on January 1, 1840. The centralist president's request stalled out, but the message it sent was clear, and news of its proposal probably arrived in Texas about the same time that Carvajal did. Still, Navarro's full-throated support of Carvajal carried Carvajal directly into President Lamar's offices. And once there, 
Carvajal made the case that to not support the Rio Grande Federalists, particularly when they were endorsed by Lamar's most significant and vocal Tejano ally, Navarro, would be a betrayal of the Federalist principles that Texians had supposedly revolted over less than five years before. Further, Carvajal argued, if the centralist regime was already intent on declaring war on Texas, why wait around? Why not support the Texians' Federalist allies in northeastern Mexico and make common cause against the regime in Mexico City? Lamar weighed his options and tried to take the measure of the moment. But in addition to geopolitical concerns, Lamar was constrained by another reality. The Republic of Texas was dead broke. And despite the Rio Grande Federalist victory at Alcantara, their subsequent defeat outside of Monterey in December of 1839 seemed to confirm the improbability of their ultimately winning this war. And so President Lamar did what any good politician would do. He hedged his bets. He told Carvajal that he couldn't openly recognize the new provisional government of the northern frontier, and publicly he let stand his prohibition against Texians serving in the Mexican Federalist Army. But privately, he opened the Republic's arsenals and sanctioned the withdrawal of weapons to help arm the outgunned Rio Grande Federalists. Further, he once again allowed Carvajal and his delegation to make a quick but successful tour of Texas to help raise funds from private Texians who were less encumbered by the diplomatic complexity of the moment, and many of whom were genuinely sympathetic to the Federalist cause. All of which helped, and Carvajal probably didn't leave Texas unhappy. But it wasn't enough to change Antonio Canales' mind about the prospect of a Texian alliance saving the day. Because Antonio Canales, the so-called brush fox, and now officially commander-in-chief of the Rio Grande Federalist Army, had always been skeptical of the Texians. His biggest sticking point, it seems, was Texians' continued claims to the lands lying between the Nueces and Rio Grande rivers. Those lands had always been a part of Tamaulipas, and they belonged, in large part, to the families of the men serving under his command now. Because of this, it seems, he had never really counted on Carvajal's diplomatic mission to succeed. Because just two days after the Casablanca Convention convened, before Cabajal had even made it to San Antonio, Canales sent Centralist General Arista a secret letter. In that letter, Antonio Canales informed Centralist General Mariano Arista that he was, quote, disposed to terminate this war, end quote. Which should land as a bit of a bombshell, given Canales' public rhetoric around the same time, and indeed even his actions just two days prior back at Casablanca. He had just declared a new government, for Christ's sakes, opposing the centralist regime. Canales' message to Arista continues, full of an oddly casual kind of confianza. This whole affair really is a shame, isn't it, buddy? Hey, but this is what the centralist regime in Mexico has brought us to, you know what I mean? You know how they are, right? I mean, hey, aren't you kind of secretly a federalist yourself? Look, you know what people like us have had to suffer for the last decade here on the border, and it's only gotten worse in the time that our little battle with you guys has gone on. The Texians have stolen almost a million pesos worth of livestock during the last few years, since there hasn't been a meaningful government force to stop their overreach. Look, man, I know you're a reasonable guy. I'm sure we can talk this out and come to some sort of understanding. That's a rough translation and a more or less accurate rendering of the tone of the letter. But as you can see, it's really hard to square this message from Canales 
with his actions calling for and leading the Casablanca Convention just a few days before. It makes you wonder, was the convention all just political theater, meant to strengthen Canales' hand to be able to negotiate a more favorable surrender with the centralists? Or was he now perhaps engaged in some kind of masterful deception, trying to lower General Arista's guard while he waited for Carvajal to bring him recruits and resources from Texas? General Arista, anyway, was having none of it. Quote, How can I even speak with someone like you after reading your previous letter? End quote, he responded. You say this conflict has left your precious Rio Grande Villas unprotected from Texians and Indians? You're the one who invited that band of thieves who stole Texas into your homes. Quote, bringing strangers to thrust a dagger into your Mexican compatriots, end quote. And still now, you're engaged in seeking a, quote, traitorous agreement with the enemy of his motherland, the Texans, whose ambitions were to wrest away the land that the inhabitants of the Villas inherited from their grandparents, end quote. After all that, how can you complain about their presence on your border? The solution is easy, Arista continued. Just stop. Lay down your arms. We've just seen that you don't have the force to actually capture any real cities like Matamoros or Monterrey. So why are you dragging this out? Or why are you waiting for the, quote, Texian enemies, end quote, to come save you? Licenciado, which is what Arista repeatedly calls Canales here, refusing to call him general. It's like calling him lawyer. Licenciado, I'm not even going to talk to you anymore until you rid yourself of all the foreigners in your midst. Until then, I'll let my weapons do the talking. And then, the real coup de grace, General Arista went and published this whole exchange in the press. Which made Canales look really bad, but it also kind of sabotaged the hopes for any future back-channel negotiations that could end this bloody affair. And Canales was clearly suggesting that he was open to just this possibility, which was not an uncommon way for these kinds of pronunciamientos to end in Mexico. Which makes me think that Arista must have had another reason for publishing this exchange. And maybe Arista's goal wasn't just to embarrass Canales. Maybe his real goal was to drive a wedge between Canales and his allies. More specifically, between Antonio Canales and Antonio Zapata. Because at the same time that Arista was refusing to negotiate with Canales, he was privately reaching out to old sombrero mantecoso Zapata. Everyone knew, Arista especially, that Zapata was the key to this revolt. He was the physical embodiment of the spirit of the region, egalitarian, fearless, and self-made. The rank and file in the Federalist Army followed Zapata because they admired him, because he looked like them, because he was one of them. And that loyalty translated into martial prowess. From January 2nd to January 7th, 1840, Zapata and just 200 men fought a rearguard action that held off General Arisa's nearly 2,000-man force, buying Canales and his entourage the critical days they needed to pull back across the Rio Grande and make it to Casablanca. So what did Zapata make of this news, that Canales was secretly parlaying with Arista to try to negotiate an end to this war? More, what did Zapata's men make of this, these vaqueros and Carrizo Indians and Anglo-Texians, who at some level already kind of mistrusted Canales? How did those men interpret the news that Canales was negotiating for their surrender? We don't know the answers to these questions, but there's a hint in the events that follow that a rupture was forming between Zapata and Canales. 
If Canales's intent had been to buy time by requesting a peace negotiation with Arista, it failed. In fact, General Arista read this request for negotiations as a sign of weakness, and it motivated him to press his attack even more aggressively against the Rio Grande Federalists. Sensing the oncoming centralist onslaught, Canales and Zapata abandoned Guerrero on February 18, 1840, and relocated to Laredo. There, in a stone house just off San Agustin Square that today houses the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande, the Rio Grande Federalists established their headquarters, making Laredo, at that moment anyway, the seat of the Republic of the Rio Grande. But just a week and a half later, on March 1st, 1840, news reached the Federalists that Centralist General Arista had taken Guerrero and was now heading for Laredo. Canales and Zapata made the tough decision to abandon Laredo as well, but they couldn't quite agree on how. More evidence of the disagreements that were beginning to characterize Zapata and Canales' relationship. With the centralist enemy bearing down on them, it took them several days before they actually marched out of Laredo, losing precious time, and apparently they didn't even have a clear destination in mind. Because on March 8th, they arrived at the old Presidio of the Rio Grande, the same Presidio which Zapata had unsuccessfully attacked the year before, but there again they argued. Canales was content to hunker down there at the Presidio. At the Presidio, his supply lines to Texas remained open, and there were rumors that none other than Juan Seguin was gathering men in San Antonio to come to his aid. In worst case, Canales felt that he could always easily pull back upriver, up into Lipan Apache country where centralists wouldn't dare follow. But the Zapata, all of this felt like running away, like retreating. And recall, quote, Zapata always wanted to fight, end quote. That same commentator, who was from Laredo, by the way, continued, quote, Canales was afraid to move without having Zapata with him, and yet Zapata could not get him to fight, end quote. By March 22nd or so, Zapata and Canales' differences broke out into the open. Zapata, it seems, was tired of the brush fox's endless strategery, his lawyerly belief that negotiations, even with a faithless enemy, could win a war, rather than the blunt end of a Macana club poised over the enemy's head. Canales' new government was starting to feel just like the old centralist one in that way. A cabal of schemers, lawyers, and absentee landowners playing a game where the stakes were other people's lives. I'm speculating, of course. Ostensibly, the reason that Zapata broke away from Canales' army with only 26 of his best men, was because Comanches had been sighted in the area. Canales supposedly ordered him not to go, but Zapata couldn't not pursue rumors of Comanches. It was hardwired into his DNA. But so too was the fact that Zapata was, quote, contrary and headstrong, end quote, according to Canales at least. And so Zapata rode out of Canales' army, only instead of riding out on the trail of a Comanche war party, Zapata and his 26 men rode straight for a little town called Santa Rita de Morelos, an island of centralist sympathies in a sea of Coahuilan Federalists. You might recall back in episode 11, when Zapata attacked the Presidio of the Rio Grande, it had been this same town, Santa Rita de Morelos, which had sent much-needed reinforcements to the centralist commander there, ultimately leading to a stalemate or maybe even a defeat of Zapata and his forces. And maybe Zapata hadn't yet forgiven him for this. 
On March 24, 1840, Zapata and 26 of his most loyal vaqueros and Anglo-Texians, including one of which who had just become engaged to his daughter, rode in to Santa Rita de Morelos. Zapata demanded that the townsfolk pay their taxes to this new government of the Rio Grande and informed them that he would accept payment in horses and other provisions. The townsfolk, of course, knew who Zapata was, and they knew that he couldn't be denied. They agreed to his terms and asked for a day to pull together the funds. In the meantime, they offered to slaughter a beeve for Zapata and his men, and of course, no Rio Grande Valley boy has ever turned down an invitation to a barbecue. Plus, it felt good to be on the attack again. What Zapata didn't know, however, was that the citizens of Santa Rita de Morelos had immediately ridden out to announce Zapata's arrival to a hidden force of 88 crack centralist horsemen who were waiting to ambush Zapata. Because two days prior, centralist general Mariano Arista had found out about the split between Zapata and Canales. And in deciding which of the two Federalist rebels to go after, it was an easy decision for Arista. He went after Zapata, quote, because of his personal valor and influence he carried within the Federalist division, end quote. General Arista dispatched 88 of his best light cavalrymen to ride like hell for Santa Rita de Morelos, while he followed close behind with 1,400 infantry and his battery of artillery. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here. And I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at NosoMedia. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Villas del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. 
And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesar Hinojosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilán Coahuiltecan Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Comecrudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.